So Ephesians chapter 6 at verse 9. This again is God's holy word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Well, as we've been considering these verses, we've been thinking about the gospel at work. The gospel at work. What difference does it make to be a Christian in the workplace, whatever that workplace may be for you? And we're reminded, I just want to reiterate again this evening, that in the Bible, in Christianity, work is a blessing. Work is a blessing. It's not a curse to try to get away from at all costs. Work is a blessing. Remember the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's the kind of importance and significance that God puts on work. And how important it is. And if we are Christians and faithful Christians... We should be thankful for work. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Not the one who cannot work, but who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That has applications from unwise government benefits that discourage work to wise church giving to the poor. It applies in all kinds of ways. Children, young people, I want you to think of this as well. Do you get to eat at home? I think most of you do. I'd be very surprised if that weren't the case. Do you get to eat at home? Well, then you should be helping out at home. You should be helping out at home. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's what God thinks about work and the importance of work. Well, the gospel at work. How do we bring the gospel, our Christian faith, into the workplace, in work situations? Well, like all of these relationships, we submit out of reverence for Christ. And here in particular, slaves obey your masters. We considered this morning why. Are you a Christian? Then you need to think, whom do I serve? 
Whom do I serve? What's my great motivation to be submissive in the workplace to those in authority over me? I need to always remember my true master is in heaven. My true master is in heaven. He is the one I love and respect and honor and seek the advantage for. And he is the one ultimately that I do my work as unto. Whatever that work is. And we remember that our true master in heaven sees all. And will make everything right in the end. No true good work will be unrewarded in Christ. And no evil work outside of Christ will be left unpunished, either for slave or free, employee or employer. God shows no favoritism. We considered that this morning. So if that's true, and it is, doesn't the rest of this word to slaves and masters just fall into place? Whom do you ultimately serve? Christ. I am seeking to do the will of God from the heart. He is the one I serve. Well, then how should I serve? If Christ is ultimately the one you have in view in all of your work, in the workplace, at home, in school, what should your work look like? Verse 5. Obey. Obey. That's the same word as in chapter 6, verse 1. Answer the door. Remember, we considered that. Literally, to listen under. You are underneath authority. You should listen. That's what God wants. In everything that is not Contrary to his word, of course. If it's sinful, then we must not answer that door. We must disobey. And so there is this same call to submissive, humble, biblical obedience. But then there's some further description of what that obedience looks like here for slaves and masters. And just notice, first of all, in general, that in every respect, in every aspect, it is something internal. It's a heart attitude. Paul doesn't go into details about external things. Well, when you hammer a nail, hammer it this way. He deals first primarily here with the heart. He's working not from the outside in, but how the gospel is always lived from the inside out. You need to begin with your heart. That's the thing that we always need to consider. When we see things going on in our lives, outside, when we see things in other people's lives, those are important. But what's going on in the heart? How did uh, the heart attitude bear that kind of fruit? And that's so important. One writer said, God changes structures, external righteous laws. But in our context in Canada, in our democracy, in the Canadian democracy that is mostly, in terms of population, adopting a secular humanist 
anti-Christ, anti-Bible position. The tide is against us. The tide is against Christians in legislatures seeking to make righteous law. We're seeing that so clearly the past couple of weeks. What should we do? What should Christian lawmakers and politicians do? What should we do as citizens in the things we can do when the tide is so much against us? Well, keep swimming. But the direction of the tide should not be a surprise. I think our prayer in these days should probably most of all be, Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. In your judgment, remember mercy. And if people are changed in their hearts, the laws will follow eventually in our country. We look forward to that day. We pray for that day. But it's the heart. And it's your heart. That's the most important thing when you go to work. It's the most important thing. It's not your boss. It's not your work environment. It's not those external things, as important as they may be. It's your heart. Your heart has the most influence on how you will go to work tomorrow. Well, what is going on in a Christian's heart? What are we called to here? With respect and fear. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Literally, as the King James says, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. This is a due respect for those in authority. But even more, it's a reverent, humble heart attitude toward God in all we do. That comes across in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, but with reverence for the Lord. Again, here's our heart attitude as we work. Fear and trembling. Respect for those in authority, but ultimately, again, like this morning, for God. That's something true for all Christians in every part of our lives. Paul said, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Peter says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time here as strangers in reverent fear. Philippians 2.12, therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean we, we go around cowering, but our fear of God, a proper biblical fear of God, reverence and awe and respect for God, permeates everything a Christian does. We live in our congregation out in Squamish. This is the name of the congregation, Coram Deo. That's Latin. It means before the face of God. We live and worship before the face of God. Psalm 139. God is there and God sees. 
We don't cower in the fear of man, but we are sober-minded in the fear of God in all we do. The next thing that Paul writes is with sincerity of heart, or literally, again, singleness of heart. Some dictionaries say this is integrity or uprightness. To put it most close, it means what you're doing, you're really doing it from the heart. You really are meaning it. No games. You're not playing games for some kind of uh, ulterior motive. No. This is what I believe, and this is how I'm living. Before the face of God. And then verse 6 gives, I think, the most vivid picture here of this section. Not with eye service as men-pleasers. Now that may be language that we're not used to hearing. It's a little clearer here in the NIV. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Not just when your employer's eye is on, not just when someone is looking over your shoulder. And we all know what that's like. If we haven't done it, we've seen it. Is the boss around? And then behavior changes. Look busy. Here she comes. Children. Oh, don't do that. Mom's, mom's coming. Right? Can happen. It's come out more recently, very emphatically, with the whole phenomenon now of remote work. Talking with someone about this this past week. Remote work or online school, whatever you call it, where you're just joining classes online. You're not in the classroom with the teacher. Sometimes I hear reports of sane productivity or increased productivity. There may be factors to account for that, but I'm not at all surprised by the many reports that I hear where things aren't turning out so well. At work. What were you doing at home all these weeks? Or at school? Have you been doing your work? It's a great temptation not to work the way we should if someone isn't looking over our shoulders. And this is what Paul is speaking against here. 2013, there was something called the Harvard Cheating Scandal. One report called it the largest academic scandal to hit the Ivy League school in recent memory. 279 students were given a take-home test, a take-home final mathematics exam. The professor for the class, Matthew Platt, started noticing, as he was marking, similarities in the answers to the questions which indicated that people had collaborated. They had gotten together something they were specifically instructed not to do. 
On further investigation, 100 of the 279 students were implicated, 60 were suspended, the rest received some sort of probation. Someone's eye wasn't on them. They took advantage. As, as I said, we've all seen it and all probably done it. The, the nobody will notice mindset. Nobody's watching me so I can work differently. I think the oil chain shop in Russell, like some other shops maybe that you go to, really get that principle. They have a big window in the waiting room. So when your car goes in, you can see everything that those technicians are doing. I think that's very smart. Or like the one Indian restaurant in Ottawa where part of the kitchen has a big window out into the eating area so that you can see the tandoori oven. That's brilliant. Not just interesting to the customer as a way to pull customers in. What a great way to improve what happens in the kitchen. I've worked in kitchens. You often don't want the people who are eating the food to see what happens in the kitchen. This is what Paul is talking about. Recently, I heard the story of a man who worked way out in the hills of Scotland, the moors of Scotland, who was in charge of keeping the road in good repair, the road that was in his area. Someone who was traveling through that area from out of town saw him doing some work on the side of the road and started to talk with him. You're doing this work all on your own. Do do you have a supervisor at all? Yes. Well, way out here, how often does he come by to see what you're doing? About once a month. So most of the time, he doesn't know when you start or when you stop on any given day, or how much work you do, or how well you do it. And the Scottish road repairman answered, Thou, God, seest me. Thou, God, seest me. It's a man who understood Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. When Hagar in the Old Testament called the well Beer Lahai Roy, Roi, it meant the well of the living one who sees me. That doctrine is both a great comfort and a great motivation. God sees me in all I do. That's the best motivation. It ought to be. God sees me in all I suffer. That's the great comfort. I've told the story before of the French sculptor Frederick Bartholdi, who oversaw the work on the Statue of Liberty. In 1985, there was restoration work on the statue. And when workmen started working on the Statue of Liberty, they were amazed at how detailed the work was on the top of the head of the Statue of Liberty. One writer said, the superb attention to detail was carried out so thoroughly, one would have thought that it was a section that would have been viewed by everyone. But the fact is that no one 
at the time it was made, were, were thought to see her from above. Once she was raised to her full height of 151 feet, only a few seagulls would notice her hairstyle. Little did those French artists imagine a day when helicopters would hover overhead to observe and enjoy such exquisite beauty. Bartholdi strove for excellence regardless of whether he thought anyone would stop to notice or admire or see. That's what Paul is calling us to. That's what God is calling us here to. What a, what a high calling we have in our work. As unto Christ, serving God for the Lord. Not just when people's eyes are on us, because we know God's eyes are always on us. The work we do when no one else sees it, or may ever see it. Will I do good work simply because God sees it? Well, the summary is there in verse 6. Doing the will of God from the heart. That's the way we should come to all of our work. It's very convicting. It's very convicting to really think about what we're called to here. And to think about our own lives and our own work and sometimes the things that we fall into as well ourselves. We have to remember, though, that this is in the context of the whole letter of Ephesians and the whole Bible. This is the Spirit-filled life. We cannot do this perfectly on our own. We need the forgiveness of our sins and we need the help of the Holy Spirit to live lives like this. But the encouragement is, We can pray for the help of the Spirit, even as we pray the forgiveness of sins. What a calling we have. The gospel at work. For whom do you work? How should we work? We work for the Lord, and we work from the heart. For the Lord and from the heart. And that will really change the way we approach our work, whatever our work is. Remember this saying, there's no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. In a sense, as I thought about, there's no little work. Because there's no little God to work for. Calvin said, there is no work, however vile or sordid, that does not glisten before God he wrote of Christians. I have a good friend in Ottawa who has a job. He works as a cleaner. Uh, You could call him a sanitary technician, but he's a janitor. He cleans up after people. when there's a mess. He cleans bathrooms. Cleans toilets. There's not much new for him every day at work. He's usually ignored by people. 
unless something doesn't get done quickly enough for someone's satisfaction. He's often treated very poorly by the manager, demeaned and belittled. But he does his work cheerfully and faithfully and is thankful for his work. And God smiles. He puts me to shame quite often. Listen to Martin Luther. This is a bit of a longer quotation, but it's so helpful, I think. As we think of our work, Luther, and don't, don't take what he seems to say about marriage and family too much. Sorry, he loved being married. He loved his wife. He says, now observe that when that clever harlot, our natural reason, which the pagans followed in trying to be most clever, takes a look at married life, she turns up her nose and says, alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up at nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, take care of my wife, provide for her, labor at my trade, take care of this and take care of that and do this and do that, endure this and endure that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves? What, should I make a prisoner of myself? Oh, you poor, wretched fellow, have you taken a wife? Fie upon such wretchedness and bitterness. It is better to remain free and lead a peaceful, careful, carefree life. I will become a priest or a nun and compel my children to do likewise. But what then does the Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes and looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the Spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I am certain that you have created me as a man and has put my body and has from my body begotten this child, and I also know for a certainty that it meets with thy perfect pleasure. I confess to thee that I am not worthy to rock the little baby or wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature and thy most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duty should be even more insignificant and despised. Neither frost nor heat, neither drudgery nor labor will distress or dissuade me, for I am certain that this is thus pleasing in thy sight. Now you tell me when a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other menial task for his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, 
Though that father is acting in the spirit just described and in Christian faith, my dear fellow, you tell me, which of the two is most keenly ridiculing the other? God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling. Not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. Those who sneer at him and see only the task but not the faith are ridiculing God with all his creatures as the biggest fool on earth. Indeed, they are only ridiculing themselves. With all their cleverness, they are nothing but the devil's fools. God redeems people, and he redeems our work. Whatever that work it is, it's a mercy that we have it, and we should do it as unto the Lord from the heart. And then in verse 9, again, Paul, like husbands and fathers, there's a word to the one in authority, hear the master's says, in the same way, doing the same thing, namely, as you have authority over others in the workplace, do it sincerely, do it reverently before the face of God. Do it from the heart. And the same as in verse 8, in verse 9, it says, knowing, knowing. This is how we see that doctrine is so important. Doctrine translates into practice. You do this because you know something. Knowing because you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Masters, remember, you have a master too. God sees James 5, 4, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. It's a word to unjust employers. Listen to what it says in Job 31. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If you have authority in the workplace, this is what you need to remember for those who are underneath you. That they are image of God creatures like you are. And that God is master of all and master of you. If our employers are not acting justly, again, it's not wrong to seek changes in our work situation, to seek other work if possible. But again, if we're in that situation at the time, two wrongs don't make a right. We cannot ignore verses 5 through 8. Listen to 1 Peter 2.18 again. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Or the NIV says harsh. It's interesting here that the Holy Spirit through Paul focuses on one thing, 
Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Do not threaten them. That's the specific thing that's mentioned here. I think the word has the sense of oppression and harshness. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. Acts 4.29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And in Acts 9, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Not with threats. We spent some time thinking, what's a threat? I think we can think of one. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. Or if you don't do that, this is what's going to happen. And I thought, well, what's the difference between a threat and a warning? Aren't there a lot of similarities there? It's an if-then. There are consequences. What's the difference between a threat and a warning? The Bible is filled with warnings for us. It's not that easy to work out. I think we intuitively sense the difference when we're being threatened or when we're being warned. But I thought maybe there's something to this. A threat is, is usually somehow really for my benefit. It either is intended to bring me some kind of peace in my life that I'm lacking, or it's for my profit or for my pride. A warning is more for the person's benefit. But there are consequences. If this, then this. And so we need to think about threats and why threats are uttered and why I may be tempted to utter a threat if I'm in authority. Employers, teachers, parents, elders. There must and there are consequences to actions, but Christian authority must be gentle and reasonable and have the good of the person in mind in all that we say and do. We catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. R.C. Sproul wrote a biography of a man named Wayne Alderson. He called the book Stronger Than Steel, so it has reference to the steel-making history in the Pittsburgh area. One reviewer wrote this, Alderson came from a family of coal miners going back four generations. He would hear his father coming back from the pit and sighing, if only they'd value me as much as they value a mule. It was easier to replace a miner than to replace a well-trained mule. Wayne's three brothers had jobs in the local steelworks, and they said, if only they would value us as much as they value the machines. So the importance of the value of a man was sown into Wayne's mind as a boy and as a teenager. He took a job in the industry and did so well that in the early 1970s, Wayne Alderson became vice president of operations in the Pitron Corporation, which had a steel foundry near Pittsburgh. The firm was struggling to survive, and after a disastrous 84-day strike, it had left an aftermath of implacable bitterness and recrimination between management and men. Wayne conceived a plan for better production, quality, relationships, and morale, which he called 
Operation Turnaround. He was determined to end the old management style of confrontation. He called for cooperation instead. He walked daily through the foundry, greeted the men by name, asked them about their work and homes, and visited them when they were sick. In fact, he treated them like human beings. At the request of a few of them, he then started a small Bible study, which grew into a brief chapel service in the storage room underneath the furnace room. As a result of the mutual confidence which he developed with the men, absenteeism and labor grievances virtually disappeared, and productivity and profits rose substantially. People called it the miracle of Pitron. After nearly two years, Pitron was sold, and Wayne Alderson lost his job. He began an itinerant ministry as a speaker, consultant, peacemaker, to spread his value of the person vision. Three ingredients. Love, a positive I'm for you attitude. Dignity, people count, and respect. Appreciation instead of criticism. Wayne said, Christ is at the center of the value of the person approach. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. There's a Christian businessman in the Woodstock area. He's a member of the Grace RP Church. This is the way he he deals with the employees in, in in his factory, at his work. He gets to know them. In a fatherly, pastoral way, he offers Bible studies for them and counseling. He's more like a pastor father than an employer. And I'm sure that his workers are motivated to work well. Well, the gospel at work, slaves or masters, working for the Lord from the heart. Beloved, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Colossians 3, 23. That must have been staggering for a slave to hear. Slaves never got an inheritance. That was reserved for sons. But in the gospel, that's what they had become, sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. May we see the gospel at work. As we go to work, and as we see God use our witness as salt and light in the world for Christ.